Okay, I'm hoping our, this is the last Sunday in our series, Making Sense of the Bible. I'm hoping that uh, one of the basic things you've gotten out of these four weeks together is a growing love for this book right here. It's just phenomenal what's in it. There is no book like it in the world, not even a book that comes close uh, in the things that it addresses. And it's, it's just marvelous. So I'm hoping that your respect for the Bible is growing. I love the passages that I can't figure out. They just, man, I'm drawn to them like a magnet. Um, they just intrigue me. What was happening? What was God thinking? What were the people thinking? Why did he say the things that he did? Why did he act the way he did? Where I can figure it out, my heart just draws closer to the Lord. And where I haven't figured it out yet, I'm intrigued. And I want to know more. It's kind of like being married to my wife. When I look at her, I have no idea what she's thinking. It's kind of like that. You know the book, uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus? should be titled Men Are From Mars, Women Are <clears throat> From a Solar System We Haven't Yet Discovered. Where a friend of mine who's a clinical psychologist says, no, the title should be Men Are From Mars, Women Are, I mean, Men Are From Earth, Women Are From Earth, Get Over It. <laughs> but when we look in this book, we, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's mysterious. There's lots of places where when you read it, you wonder what's happening there. Why did God do what he did? And so I hope your love for this book is growing through this. Mark mentioned, and he prayed this morning about it, uh, Jesus when he was revealed to Israel and to the world, what a momentous event that was. And that is so true. Um, you know, when we, we, look at, we look at the Bible and we think, well, they sat down and they wrote these books. They had their theology all figured out. But there's a plenty of evidence to show that it was a real struggle for the first century church. They didn't have the New Testament to guide them. It hadn't been written yet. And so when Paul and Peter and James and Jude and, and uh, the authors of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they sat down the road, it was many years after Jesus had left the scene. That makes sense to me. Because all they had at their disposal was the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and the truths in there. And then they had the life and teachings of Jesus, of which they had been a part of. They had witnessed it. They had seen Jesus firsthand. Uh, in all the many ways that he was countercultural, the many ways that he went against tradition. Sometimes he uh, recrafted parts of the law. Sometimes he fulfilled the law, parts of it. Some of it he made obsolete, no longer in the force at all. And they see all that happening without guidelines, without a book to tell them, here's how to make sense of Jesus on the earth. They wrote the book. So they went through they went through a long period of time where they're they're kind of scratching their heads trying to make sense of all of that and understand it. Um, and then they began to write what we now know as the New Testament. And they began to capture for us the stories, the teachings, and their application of those stories and teachings in a way that is it's just wonderful. It draws us into it. I don't know what they would have thought when they saw the various things that Jesus did. I mean, they're shocked sometimes. He's speaking to the woman at the well at Samaria. They come back and they're just aghast. What are you doing? We don't do those things. 
Jewish teachers don't speak with women. They were aghast that he would be sitting there speaking to uh, a woman who was very promiscuous, a Samaritan woman on top of it. Or I wonder what they thought when, uh, I know what Martha thought, when Mary comes and sits down at his feet. In the, in the ancient world, uh, a Jewish rabbi would teach males, not females. And there was a specific place in the house where that happened. And all of a sudden, Mary, a woman, is sitting at his feet. No wonder Martha got upset. It's not because she has to work. I love that interpretation. It's not because she has to work. It's because Jesus is committing a cultural faux pas. He's sitting there as a teacher, allowing a woman to sit at his feet. I mean, that's groundbreaking. It's countercultural. It's shocking to the world. Jesus was offensive to the first century world. We could go on and on and on and look at these ways that he did that, the things that he said out of his mouth. Uh, you have heard it said not to commit murder. I tell you, if you hate your brother and sister, you've already committed murder in your heart, right? Well, to us, we go, yeah, so what? But in the first century world, no one had ever thought about the inside of the person. We don't have any record of that. It was all based on behavior, shame, and honor. It, no one thought or cared about what you thought on the inside. What they cared about was your actions. And so when Jesus moved the discussion to the inside of the person, my theory is he just introduced modern social sciences, psychology and psychiatry. He began to look at the interior of the person because that's what needed redeemed. That's what needed to be redeemed. And that's the part that was broken was the inside. And so we could go on and on and look at the stories of Jesus as they began to record it. What he did was, was, was groundbreaking, countercultural. It was offensive to the first century world. So they had that, and they had the Old Testament, and then they had to sit down and write the New. It's amazing. Because each of these books are going to a different place in the world. And we began to see what I think is the first truly multicultural, multi-ethnic model of how to treat differences. So Romans is written to the people in Italy. Corinth is written to the people in Greece. Uh, Philippians is written to the people in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Uh, Titus is written to the people in Crete, an island culture. James is written to Christian, Jewish Christians. And so as they move into these different cultures, they're making sense of Jesus' teachings, his actions, his life, his stories, his miracles, uh, but they're doing it against the backdrop of the Old Testament because they believed the Old Testament was the Bible, and it was. What they did not do was create a new set of laws. That's not what they did. What they did was make sense of their world in light of the Old Testament. So in Luke 24, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, and he used the entire Old Testament to defend himself as the Messiah didn't need the New Testament. We shouldn't either. We should be able to do everything from the Old Testament. And so Jesus was a surprise when he came on the scene. And what, as they began to write these New Testament books, they weren't trying to generate a new law. They're trying to make sense of their world, their different worlds, in light of Jesus' teaching and how he fulfilled the Old Testament. So it creates controversy for us. Because what we want is a book with chapters. Chapter 1, how to please Jesus. Chapter 2, what are the things you need to know your first year of being a Christian? 
Chapter 3, what do you need to know your second year of being a Christian? Oh, yeah, let me go to the index in the back and so I can look up what do I do about this. But that's not what we have. Not even close. What we have is a book that is fabulous. It's the story of Jesus breaking into our world and helping us figure out what the key principles are to live life. That's really what it is. And then we see the examples in the different cultures of how they applied that. So let me remind you of what our principles are up to this point. We're going to address principle number four today. When we apply the scripture, that's the question we're asking. Remember I said in the beginning, the challenge is not in interpreting scripture. If you give me three minutes, I can teach you. I think I can convince all of you that Paul taught that women should wear head coverings, 1 Corinthians 11. What I couldn't convince you of is whether we apply it today or not. That's where the challenge is, is what do we bring forward? That's the question. So principle number one to help guide us was this. God's love for a broken world guides how and when we apply a passage today. Or the question we answered was, does our interpretation and our application lead to bringing God's love through his son Jesus out to this world right here? It should. If it doesn't, then we've got something wrong. We've really got to check that. And Jesus said uh, the two commands that summed up the entire, all the commands of the scriptures, love God and love people. He said on these two commands, all of the scriptures depend. He just created a hierarchy in principle. And if you want to know more about that, go back and listen to the first sermon where we actually took that and pulled it out and looked at it some more. We have a hierarchy. Does our interpretation and our practice that we develop, does it result in bringing the love of God out to a broken world? I met with the high schoolers last night. It was really fun. Uh, Stefan invited me in. Once a month I come in and sit with the high schoolers and they get to ask questions. And we, we talked about what are the practices in church that keep the world out? They don't want any part of us. And what are the practices that draw the world in? It's a great question. And we talked for the whole time, and, and they had fantastic answers uh, on where, where, if we're not careful, we keep the world from coming. They're not, they don't want to be part of us. There's an overarching principle, the love of God for this broken world. That trumps everything. Principle number two, our interpretation and practice should always lead to redemption in our current world. There we talked about the Bible is redemptive. Every passage in the Bible is redemptive to someone just not you, not directly. There are many passages that are not directly applicable to you. We looked in Deuteronomy. Do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. We still can't figure out what's going on there. We have theories, but we do know that it doesn't apply to us today. It was redemptive for someone, and the people that received it would have understood it. We don't. And so with that in mind, what we're trying to do is figure out how it's redemptive so that we can see God's love. Because then we begin to see the patterns emerge of how God reaches this very broken world. So the way we apply scripture, the practices we develop as Christians, does that lead to bringing God's love out to this broken world in a healthy way, in a redemptive way? That was principle number two. Those two principles raise a third question. Well, can't we just make the Bible say whatever it wants? Can't we do whatever we want? Don't ever use the term, well, that was cultural 
because 100% of the Bible was cultural. The moment you use that argument, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. So principle number three helps address that. Principle number three, which was last week, our interpretation and our practice should always be in conformity with the freedom established by the Bible. There is a line in the sand, and we will stick to it. Where the Bible is consistent and clear, that's a line in the sand. We use the example of sexual immorality last week, specifically adultery. Adultery is always wrong in the Bible. There's no exception. It's not like it's okay in Romans, but it's not okay in 1 Corinthians. It's not like that at all. It's always wrong. Now, the Bible clarifies what adultery is and in the process heals some brokenness, but adultery is always wrong, always. And so, as a church, we will always believe that. I'll always hold the line on divorce. Divorce is wrong. We have allowances made. Jesus gave one. But it's always wrong. Now, having said that, let me give you another caveat. We will always show grace as well. I appreciate the honesty of many of you. I know that some of you have been in adulterous relationships. I know that some of you are divorced. I get that. I myself was saved out of an immoral past. I understand what grace looks like. We will always show grace, but we don't move the line. That would be a mistake. The church today is in danger of a pendulum swing. We're over here where we're pretty judgmental, the traditional church has been, and now there's a church coming out of that that's reacting to that, swinging the pendulum over here and saying, well, we'll just tolerate everything. Well, that's the wrong answer too because the moment you normalize sin, it's no longer in need of redemption. The best thing we can do is leave it right in the middle. Sin is sin. Sin needs redemption. That's what it means. But it always has grace accompanying it. So we will be a church of grace. So if your marriage is in trouble, if you've struggled with uh, immorality or adultery, pornography, whatever, if you're on the verge of divorce or you've been through divorce, my desire is that you'll find grace when you come to us. We'll help you walk through that and learn what lessons need to be learned and figure out how to, how to make you more whole in your presentation of yourself to the Lord. So that's what principle number three is. Where the Bible draws a line, we will draw a line. Where the Bible allows for variation, we have freedom. We use the example there of in Corinthians, he says to the young widows to stay single, but in 1 Timothy, he says the young widows to remarry. Okay, we have freedom. By the way, that was the decision our elders came to on the role of gender, the role of women, could they be elders, is that we have verses and passages on both sides of the argument. And so therefore, even though they're both pretty clear, what we said was we have freedom. So when you have freedom, what do you do? Can you do whatever you want? No. Now we go back to the first two principles. Does our interpretation and practice lead to bringing God's love to a broken world? And does it do it in a healthy way? Those are the first two principles. Okay, so the question we're going to raise today is does our interpretation lead to a flourishing community right here at BCC? So our practices, the things that we do, the things that we talk about, the things that we believe, does it create a flourishing community, a healthy community right here? Our culture today is simply not life-giving. I know that's not news to any of you. I get it, but it's not. Our perspective today, and I'm talking about the broader culture, is more individualistic than ever before. Our personal integrity is declining. 
I see it all around me, everywhere I look. Our moral base is deteriorating. Our confidence is declining. It's going down as a nation. We're becoming more and more cynical. All you got to do is look at the presidential election. And I haven't talked to a single person that's, that's not scratching their heads in some way. I, I keep asking myself, how did we get here? Our individual trends toward materialism and greed is increasing. The news that we read on a daily basis seems to be filled with more and more tragedy and destruction. Horrible things. I read, get up in the morning and I read, uh, I have several news outlets. One of the first things I do is I read. I want to know what's going on in the world. I'm just astounded at how consistent it is in its negativity, its tragedy, its destruction. We as a nation are growing increasingly divided. And if we're not careful, that's going to impact us. We have to work really hard not to let that happen. We're more focused on profit and greed than we are for caring for each other, it seems. Progress, as an example, is defined more in terms of efficiency than it is relationship. We don't mind firing and laying people off to make it a little more profitable. We don't mind it at all. It happens all the time, all around us. Our leaders are more focused on creating fear than they are creating hope. They use the language of hope, but they don't do it. They generate fear. The people in our community are increasingly tired, unhappy, unsatisfied, empty, hopeless, despairing. That's the reality of the country that we live in. What's the answer? What is God's answer to that? Us. Right here. This is his answer. I'm going to read Isaiah 61. For those of you that want to follow along, Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah is a prophet written to the uh, uh, southern kingdom before they were sent into exile. There's three parts to Isaiah. The third part is addressing the people who are coming back from exile. They're pretty demoralized. The, the monarchy's gone. There's no more great king. The temple's been destroyed. The city walls are torn down. Uh, they realize that they have disobeyed the Lord and paid a price for it. They're pretty demoralized. They're pretty despairing. They're pretty without hope. And the third section of Isaiah is addressing those people to give them hope. So it actually relates to us because it's addressing the future. Isaiah 61, I want you to listen to these words because I think this is what God desires from us to address the problems in our own culture. Isaiah 61, I picked this passage because this is the passage that Jesus quoted when he went back to Nazareth for his first public statement as the Messiah. He read Isaiah 61 and talked about it. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, and you'll notice if you're following along, the word Lord is all capitalized letters. That's a clue that we're using the God's personal name, the name of the one true living God. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. There's the first one. Good news. It's not hopeless. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We have brokenhearted people in our own group, don't we? We have people right out there that are friends that are brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives, release from the darkness for the prisoners. 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God. God will take care of it. You don't have to. Don't have to get even. To comfort all who are mourning, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them. Now look, this is part of our purpose. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. We should bring beautiful things out into the world. Husbands, when was the last time you brought flowers home? Just to bring something beautiful into the environment. The oil of joy instead of mourning. People should look to us and find joy. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. Hmm, I wonder who they are. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for, gen for generations. Who are they? When you turn to Acts 15, which we read last week, the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, they're wrestling with this amazing new event that God cares about the Gentiles. Wow. God brought the Gentiles into the community of the faith. Acts 11 to 15, they're marveling over that, scratching their heads and rejoicing. And they're going, wow, well then, God has decided to bring salvation to the Gentiles. What does that mean? As Jews, all they knew was to obey the law. We don't want to burden them, they said. We don't want to put a new law on them. We want to give them maximum freedom. Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free, not legalism. So they worked very hard to begin to take out of the mix this approach to legalism. While they're in the middle of this, James stands up in Acts 15. In verse 14, he says, Simon, that's Peter, by the way, Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. So God chose a people for his name from the Gentiles. He's bringing the Gentiles in. That's almost all of us, by the way. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. Now, he's going to quote Amos, but this is found in Jeremiah. It's found, I happen to use the Isaiah text. There's other prophets that say the same thing. Listen to these words. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That's what God is doing by bringing the Gentiles into the church. He's not talking about rebuilding a literal city. He's talking about rebuilding a broken world. This is what Christ did to rebuild a broken world. This is us. Why does he do it? So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. So they saw the Isaiah passage where we're to bring beauty out, we're to bring care, love, respect, all of that. They saw that as being fulfilled right there on that day when the Gentiles came to know Christ. That's what the prophets meant. We thought he's going to be rebuilding this, these structures out here, but that's not it at all. He's rebuilding a broken world. That's what it is. That's what our role is. So, what is God's desire of our culture? The restoration of human dignity. John 10.10, 10, Christ said, I came that you might have life, that you might have it abundantly. 
2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. He, ex- he desires us to experience the deepest and most profound joy possible. That's what he desires. The problem is the world doesn't know how to get there. That's the problem. They're trying desperately, and they don't know how to get there. And so the answer is us. He desires to see his kingdom at work in our lives so that we can bring the kingdom into their lives. That's what he desires. We have to thrive in order to make that happen. If our divorce rate is the same as the world, we've lost our voice when it comes to marriage. If our abuse rate of our children is the same as the world, we've lost our voice when it comes to divorce, I mean to abuse. If our rate of division is the same as the world's, we've lost our voice. Make sense? This is where it begins, right here. This, the most important thing we can do is to create a community here that's healthy and thriving because they'll come running. I said last week, wives, there's nothing wrong with submitting to your husbands. What a beautiful thing. Husbands, there's nothing wrong with sacrificing for your wives. What an incredible event that we would literally put each other first. What a beautiful picture. Trust me, the world sees that. They will come running. They don't see us gossiping and slandering and complaining about things. They see us trusting the one true living God who knows what's happening. They'll come running. They see us being unified in our love for each other. They'll come running. If we are to thrive, we can only do it as part of a larger community. You can't do it by yourself. It just can't be done. Paul takes it one step further and reminds us, our enemy is not flesh and blood. Neither Trump nor Clinton are our enemies. President Obama is not our enemy. That's why we're told to pray for him several times. Your neighbor who may be hating you is not your enemy. Your boss who may be getting ready to sue you or is abusing you is not your enemy. The enemy is far more heinous, far more insidious than fellow humans. It's not us. So this raises the question, do we really believe we can make a difference in Summit County? Do we believe it or no? I asked our elders that regularly. I just asked them on Tuesday night. And the answer was a unanimous yes, we do. I believe it. I would not be here standing before you if I did not think we can make a difference. I believe we can make a difference. What is our role then? Let me tell you what it's not. This is not our primary role. Our primary role is not evangelizing. Although we should be. Our primary role is not about voting for the correct president. Although that's helpful. Our primary role is not about passing the appropriate legislation, although that's important. Our primary role is about being the community of faith that God created us to be and has called us to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our primary role. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have, what? Love for one another. That's our primary role. Before we can have effective impact in our own culture, we need to have a flourishing community. So what does that mean, a flourishing community? We should live in unity. Why? 
so that the disenfranchised out there, they can come and find meaning and acceptance right here. Because this is a space where we care for each other. We should continue to develop healthy marriages so that those marriages that are failing, they'll come here and they'll find hope. If your marriage is failing, don't be ashamed. Come talk to us. We should be parenting our children and grandchildren well so that those parents and children who are struggling out there, they'll find solutions here. Hope. We should be treating each other with respect so that those who don't know Christ can find respect here. We should be increasing our meaningful engagement with each other so that those who live isolated lives will find significance here. The gender question is only question number one. We have many more complex things coming behind us that culture is throwing at us. If we don't know how to engage in meaningful dialogue with respect, we're going to be in trouble as a church. We should be encouraging each other daily, Hebrews says, so that the discouraged will find reasons to continue on. That's what a flourishing church should look like. When the world looks at us, they say, I want to go be a part of them because I'll find something good, a refreshment for the soul. Culture is not a battleground to be won or lost. We need to quit thinking of it that way. It creates division. It's not a battleground. It's a resource to be cultivated. It's a gift from the Lord. We don't do it very well because of the broken world in which we live, but it's a resource and we cultivate it. It's called culture care. We act the right way and we begin to create a whole different viewpoint of what culture is about. It emphasizes the common good. It brings us together around common goals and our common goal is to see the love of Christ brought out to this world. And by the way, it involves cultivating the soil of culture for the next generation of which we have done a terrible job. I know I sit with your teenagers and your adult children. I listen to them. And you know what they say? My parents taught me that that, that blank, you fill in the blank, is sin. I just don't know if I believe it. We haven't helped them understand why. We have a lot of work to do to really begin to address that. So we're just entering a year where we're going to be creating vision and you're going to be involved in it for the next three years. Our ministry plan is three years long. One of the questions we're going to ask you is where do you want to be in three years? Okay, as a short postscript, when possible, we should always move kingdom living. We should move the dynamics of kingdom living out and we should push the envelope within culture. Where possible, where it's possible. Where it's not possible, let's don't. But where we can, let's do it. Galatians 3.28, if you are in Christ, there's neither male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. I'm thankful for the people that pushed the slavery envelope and got rid of it 150 years ago. Well, guess where we live in eternity? Male and female, they're equal. Where we can push the envelope, let's push the envelope. This is not a slippery slope. A slippery slope is when you take something that the Bible is consistent in and you violate it. So the moment we say adultery is okay, now we've jumped on a slippery slope because the Bible is very clear that it's not. Okay? That's not the case with the role of women. There are, the church is divided on this issue. That means we have freedom. 
So to push that envelope means we're going to be redemptive. We're going to give the world a model of what it means to treat each other with respect. So does our interpretation lead to a flourishing community here? That's the question. Next week, we're going to start studying Philippians. I believe Philippians teaches that standing firm together in unity is what generates joy. That's where we're going to find it. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward, but I want you to see a video uh, produced by the Gideons. Uh, what would happen if we didn't have this? What would happen?